0: Let's turn to the Old Testament, Zechariah, chapter 4. Zechariah, chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Anybody recognize that verse? Mm -hmm. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover the word of the Lord came unto me saying The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house His hands shall also finish it And you shall know that the Lord of hosts Has sent me unto you For who has despised the day of small things For they shall rejoice And shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel With those seven They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. Here, Zechariah receives a prophetic word. I said this morning that I want to share this evening on the place of the prophetic word in the life of the church, in the life of individuals. If you were to make a comparison in the Old Testament where there's so much prophecy, you would discover there's probably more prophetic words spoken to individual people than there is a whole nation, perhaps. Lots of examples of people like Zerubbabel here who gets a, a specific word from God that God sent somebody with a specific word uh, that Zerubbabel needed to hear. The New Testament assumes that the church is full of prophecy. I'll say that again. It makes the assumption that prophecy is the normal expression of any spirit-filled church. The Bible doesn't know a spirit-filled church where prophecy is not present. It is abnormal for the prophetic gift to be absent. It just assumes it. It's in the list of the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. It's in the list of spirit expressions in Romans chapter 12. In what we call the fivefold or fourfold ministry, whichever you happen to be, prophets are mentioned as foundational to the life of the church. First Corinthians twelve twenty eight says that God has put first apostles, secondarily prophets, Thirdly, teachers. After that, workings of miracles and gifts of healings and so forth. 1 Corinthians 11, it is just assumed that there are women in the church that pray and that they prophesy. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit will come upon you, the result being you shall prophesy. Acts 21, Philip had four daughters which did prophesy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, a church that was only six months old in the Lord, was already operating gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 made the assumption that in the church meetings prophets were present and that prophets would speak more than one of them. Makes that assumption. It is just assumed all the way through all the pages of scripture that the prophetic gift, the prophetic word is just a normal part of the church's worship. It's to be normal there. It's not to be an extraordinary thing. It's to be normal and expected as part of a New Testament spirit-filled church. I'm not going to try to teach this evening on the difference between the office of a prophet and the gift of prophecy. It's not going to be my point. That's going to be another study at some other time. But I just want to show the importance of hearing from God by way of a prophetic word. Whether it comes through a gift of prophecy or whether it comes through somebody who stands in the office of a prophet, either way, we need to hear the word of the Lord in a prophetic manner. The Bible just assumes that is normal in the New Testament church. Darla and I have been very, very blessed for most of our ministry lives to have been surrounded by people who stood in the office of a prophet, who functioned. Not just have a gift of prophecy for edification, exhortation, comfort. But we have been very blessed to be constantly surrounded by people who stand in a prophetic office, who move in revelation, who move in great word of wisdom, great word of knowledge consistently. We actually, on our board of our directors back in Canada for our charity that we had back in Canada, on our board was a man who definitely stood in the office of a prophet. If you were in one of his meetings, he'd probably just one by one prophesy to every single person in the room. He just had that gift. Uncanny, that's not the right word, extremely accurate. Uh, just your life is not hidden from God, and if God wants to make it known to a prophet, he certainly can. And our own Father in the Lord, our own mentor that started us in our, our spirit filled journey in seeking God for the things of the Spirit. Uh, Definitely stood in the office of a prophet. Definitely had revelation gifts flowing through him. And we worked with him so closely over so many years. And and a very common thing for him is when the the anointing is there, is that he just reads the meeting. He reads the spirit of the meeting. God, what are you discerning? What are you saying here? And uh, then just basically have someone stand up and say, well... Six months ago, you were thinking such and such a question as you stood out in the field somewhere. And only you know that stuff. And the amount of, fantastic amount of revelation that occurred. And I think one of the most moving times I ever saw that gift in operation where he took a man who was in his 60s, who only came to the Lord in probably late 50s or 60s, and a prophetic word spoken over him that lasted at least 20 minutes long this prophecy and this word of the Lord went through his entire life when you were eight years old you're standing out in the field at a farm you're leaning back on a fence the straw hanging out of your mouth and you're looking up the sky and said God are you up there and a memory that only he had never told anybody and just walked through his whole life to the point where he got saved and then began to speak what God desired to do with him in the future we were blessed to be associated with that kind of prophetic word for decades and decades and decades. That makes me sound old, doesn't it? (laughs) But literally decades, four decades worth of experience in our life of watching the prophetic gift in the office of a prophet um, in operation. And it's done something to me. I can't deny the reality of the gifts of the Spirit I cannot deny the necessity of the gifts of the Spirit, and I deplore the lack of them in church meetings. God has given us the gifts of the Spirit to help us function in life, to help us worship, to help us to pray, and so forth. And we're very, very appreciative of that experience. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 to 10, which I just read was a word to a man named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the governor of the nation of Israel, of Judah, so to speak. And the the story of Zerubbabel is actually found in the book of Ezra. And I will get you to turn to Ezra in just a few minutes. to, To look at the story of Zerubbabel and to see the importance of hearing from God in certain points in our life. The time of history is after the Babylonian exile is over. You remember your Old Testament history that Judah went into captivity for seven decades to Babylon. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, physically, geographically removed them out of the promised land, back to Babylon, where they were there for seven decades. And after seven decades, Persia became the world power, conquered Babylon and consequently inherited all these Jewish refugees in Babylon. And Cyrus was the king of Persia. And Cyrus, one of the first things he did after he conquered Babylon, was says, you Jews may return home and rebuild your temple. And the story of that is in the book of Ezra. But before we look at that, let's back up in Zechariah chapter 4. And it'd be good to read the entire chapter, because we want to understand the significance and the importance of hearing from the Lord by way of the prophetic gift. Verse 1, it says, The angel that talked with me came again and woke me as a man that's wakened out of a sleep. And he said unto me, What do you see? And he said, Well, I've looked, and behold, there's a candlestick, all of gold. With a bowl on the top of it, and there are seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are on the top thereof. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, on the other on the left side. Have you all got that picture in your mind? Have you got to see the golden candlestick with seven bowls on it? Do you see an olive tree on the right? Do you see an olive tree on the left? Do you see the pipes coming from the olive tree, emptying the oil, olive oil, into the golden lampstand? Have you got the picture in your mind? Now this is what Zechariah sees as the angel shows it to him, and he, he's confused in verse 4, and he said, What are these? What am I seeing? I'm I I see his picture, I have this vision, what is it that I am seeing? And the angel said, Don't you know? I think the angel's got his tongue-in-cheek when he says, you don't get this, do you? And Zechariah says, no, I don't. Instead of explaining what the vision is, he says, here's a prophetic word. I want you to speak to a man named Zerubbabel. And that's verses 6 to 10 that we just read. Now after he gives this prophetic word, down in verse number 11, Zechariah is curious, what is he seeing? So he says in verse 11, what are these two olive trees, one on the right side of the candlestick, and the other on the left? And I answered again, I said, what are these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the, oil, the golden oil out of themselves? The angel said, don't you know what these are? He says, no, I don't. The answer in verse 14, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. When people stand in the office of a prophet, it's very often that the Lord speaks to them in visions, what's called similitudes. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 20 it says the Lord speaks to prophets through visions and similitudes. Now what is a similitude? It means it's a, it's a picture where something represents something else. Similar to. To help us to understand, associate something we're familiar with, and from that we get what the Holy Spirit wants to say. What are these two olive trees? What is the golden candlestick that Zechariah is seeing? Well, he says that the two anointed ones who stand by the whole earth, the two olive trees. With that picture in mind, why don't you skip to the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible? Skip to the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible. And you're going to have some commentary that explains what golden candlesticks are and what olive trees are. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand... And the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks, which you saw, are the seven churches. So the candlestick represents the people of God. The corporate gathering of the people of God. We are, as a church, a golden lampstand to the Lord. Obviously, we need oil let our light shine. Without oil, there's no fire burning. There's no candle being lit without oil. So the purpose of the candlestick is to give off light, it's to give testimony, it's to give witness. And the more oil that's in there, the brighter it will shine. The more pure the oil is, the more pure that light will shine. Our testimony. Now go to Revelation chapter 11, and you'll discover what the two olive trees are. Revelation chapter 11... A vision of two witnesses at the end of time, perhaps. In chapter 11, in verse number 3, it says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy. Verse number 4, these are the two Olive trees and the two candlesticks stand before the God of the whole earth. Down in verse number 10, at the last half of verse 10, it says, because these two prophets. What are the two olive trees? They are the two prophets. So you got the golden candlestick, a prophet on the right side, and a prophet on the left side. And the picture is is as they deliver the prophetic word of the Lord, it is supplying oil to the candlestick so that it can shine in the testimony of what the people of God are supposed to be. That's what the picture is. Now, Zerubbabel sees this and he hasn't got a clue. He says, what am I seeing? And the angel knows what it is. I think he's teasing Zechariah. He says, don't you know? He says, no, I don't know what these are. Because in reality, one is Zechariah himself. And the other one is a prophet by the name of Haggai. Zechariah and Haggai the two prophets that were sent by the Lord into this most difficult time in the history of Judah when the work of God ground to a halt through discouragement God sent two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai and you can read both of those Old Testament books in your Old Testament obviously and they were sent to someone named Zerubbabel to get the job finished With that in mind, turn to the book of Ezra and let's see the story and the role that these prophets played in the the book. The book of Ezra, chapter 1. You have where it it comes into history where Cyrus is king of Persia, Cyrus has just conquered Babylon. And now Cyrus says this. Can you imagine a heathen king saying this? It says in verse 1 that the, spirit, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Aren't you glad that God could influence even heathen kings? Amen. It says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. What did he stir him up to do? Verse 2, then said Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Isn't that a good thing for him to recognize where he got his power from? But then he says, and he has commanded, he has charged me, this is a heathen king talking, He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So he says, all you Jewish captives in Babylon, which one of you would like to go home? How many of you would like to go home and rebuild the temple of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed seven decades ago? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that absolutely amazing that God can do whatever he wants in history? And he gave that edict. Now, sadly, while a few did go back, is really only a remnant of the Jews went back, many had become accustomed to Babylon and chose to live there. But there was a remnant that did go back In verse number 5, it says, Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, the priests, the Levites, and with all of them whose spirit God had raised. And they were going up to build the house of the Lord, which was in Jerusalem. And they got to take all the, the cups and the saucers and the plates and all of those things that had been stolen seven decades ago. They had permission to take all of this stuff back. To Jerusalem. And the Lord had stirred up the spirit of people to do this great work. A remnant went back and they went back under the authority of this person named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel had a helper. His name was Joshua. No, not the same Joshua as the book of Joshua. Joshua, who was a high priest at the time, a different Joshua, and he was high priest under the time. In chapter 3 of Ezra, when they get back to Jerusalem, they start rebuilding. Now I just want you to stop and think for a second of the mighty act of God here who is shaping world history, moving world leaders to perform His will and gives an opportunity for His people to get back and restore everything that had been lost. How many would say that is one major blessing? Absolutely, this is a phenomenal intervention of God in world history here. Now, how many would know that the enemy wouldn't like it? Is that not correct? The enemy would not like it. But in chapter 3, you've got them starting to rebuild. And they're laying the foundation of the house of the Lord. And they're setting the altar back on the base... Or where it should be, and start rebuilding the city, and the temple, and so forth, and everybody is working hard, and when they get the foundation of the house of the Lord laid, they have a worship service at the end of chapter 3, and there's so much crying, and there's so much shouting, that you can hear them from a great distance. I mean, can you just imagine that, you know, I know they hear us out there, you know. Hallelujah. <laughs> But in this meeting, you can hear them miles away because of the great noise in which they shouted and worshipped and cried and prayed and rejoiced and sobbed because you had some young people. That were born in Babylon who had never seen the original house. And they're all shouting for great joy. And then you got some older people who did see it. But that was seven decades ago. And they've come back as old people. And they're seeing it relayed again. And it moves them greatly emotionally after seven decades to see God faithful. And they're emotional about it. Sometimes, they, they, some of them are emotional, but in a negative way, because it looks nothing like what Solomon had. That's why it says, don't despise the day, the small beginnings. You hear how the prophetic word fits into this? Don't despise the day, the small beginnings, because you know, this is nothing compared to what Solomon had. We need encouragement in the work of the Lord. But in chapter 4, adversaries, Don't you love that word? Enemies started coming. Who do you guys think you are building this house? Let us join you. But those who wanted to join were not real true Jews. They had mixed blood in them and they said, no, 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 it's not for you to build, it's only for us to build. And when they refused, well, look at chapter 4, verse 4, what happens. When they were refused, it says, Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. Just expect opposition. I would like to say it will never happen, but I wouldn't be that foolish. I would like to think it would never happen, but just expect opposition opposition and your hands are weakened you're not doing the work and look at verse 5 the enemies even hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose If my flesh has a weakness what about if If. (laughs) it would be sometimes frustration just gets the better of me I hate getting frustrated But here we've got the enemy frustrating, meddling, being all sorts of problems. The idea is to get you so discouraged you're just going to quit. How many know that something mighty could be birthed of God? I mean, it was obvious this whole thing was birthed of God. Even Cyrus is moved by the God of heaven. And even Cyrus donates all the Babylonian stuff that was captured and gives it back to them, you know, to go back to the temple. And they're walking back with this great wealth. And God has literally shaped nations in order to bring this to pass. Even when something starts out so great, constant opposition wears you out. Anyone know that? Constant opposition opposition wears you out. If you read the rest of verse 5, for the rest of the time when Cyrus was king of Persia, and when it turned to Darius king of Persia, and in verse 6, in the reign of Ahasuerus, and in the beginning of his reign, in verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes, and we go through leader after leader after leader. You're talking about years of time of constant frustration, so much so that we're now decades removed from the original edict of Cyrus. How many know that history can get faded in your background and you kind of forget what God did and you're more taken up mentally with the problems you're facing rather than the edict that God gave to your life. Well, they wrote a letter to, in the days of Artaxerxes, and they said, you better check out these Jews who are building. And they made no mention of the edict that Cyrus made. said, so these Jews are troublemakers, just check the history out. You just better check this out. And so the king checked it out, and sure enough, you can find enough in the history books that they said, oh yeah, these Jewish people are troublemakers, we better not let them rebuild this thing, because they're going to build and just claim independence. And so there was by force, verse number 21 of chapter 4, That the king says, the different king, you give a commandment to cause these men to cease. And that city will not be built until another commandment comes from me. We're going to check this out. And they have got to stop building. Verse number 23. It says, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shammai the scribe and their companions, they went up and hasted Jerusalem unto the Jews and made them stop by force and Power. In other words, they sent armies in to stop this rebuilding of the temple. Are you getting this a little better? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. First number 24, it says, Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. For those who don't know history, let me tell you, that means the work lay in idle state for 16 years. 16 years. Hope had gone. The original vision had been drained from them. The sense of God giving them this mandate is long out of their consciousness. They're just weary of the struggle, weary of the fight, and the work of God is just laying, not built. You see, but I get stirred up about stuff like that. When I see churches without gifts of the Spirit, it bugs me. It bothers me. The church isn't built up, but we're happy for it to lay in a waste condition. We're happy for it to be incomplete. We're happy to have church without gifts of the Spirit. We're happy to have church without the prophet. That bothers me. It is incomplete. But we got so accustomed to it that we just live that way. But you need a prophet to come along and stir you up. To get you back to the original purpose of God. The original vision of God. And get you to move from the incomplete for which you have accepted. To the more perfect revelation of what God is after. You need the prophet to stir you up. So that's where you read in chapter 5 of Ezra. Then the prophets. The two olive trees. Zechariah and Haggai. They prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even the name to them. Now, their prophecies, you can read them. One's called the book of Zechariah, the other one's called the book of Haggai. You can read the prophecies at length of what was spoken into the life of Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua, the high priest, as a result of this prophetic ministry, look at verse 2, then rose up. Oh, I like that. Because of the prophetic ministry, the people, after letting the thing lie for 16 years, they rose up. You see, get some olive oil into that golden candlestick and let it burn. They rose up, rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek. And they began to build the house of God with Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God, helping them. Well, of course, those enemies were right at it again. Oh, you're going to, okay, they're going to frustrate them again. But verse number five. It says, some renewed because of the prophecy, there was a renewed faith on the inside of these people. And it says, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, and they could not cause them to cease. You see, there's something about hearing that word of the Lord that stirs up your spirit, that no amount of trial is going to extinguish what God has put in there. We need the office of the prophet. They took the whole matter to King Darius. And a search was made. You know what Darius finds in the search? He finds the edict that Cyrus himself had given all those years ago. And so Darius overturns all the opposition and supports the work of God. there back in Jerusalem until you get to chapter 6 and verse 14 where it says this. Chapter 6.14, And the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered. Now hear that word, they prospered. That word prosper is important. They prospered. Their spirit was strengthened. There was a new divine consciousness come into them. That couldn't be put down. They prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Edu, and they built and they finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel. It says, they prospered. Second Chronicles 20 in verse 20, King Jehoshaphat said, "Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper." This word prosper is associated in the Old Testament with the prophetic office, with the word of the prophet. The word prosper means this, the prophetic word will cause you to make progress in your life. The prophetic word will cause you to come to success. The prophetic word would cause your life to become profitable. It's the same Hebrew word. Now, this is interesting. It's the same Hebrew word that you find all the way through the book of Judges and all the way through the Samuels when it says the Spirit of the Lord came on somebody. It says the Spirit of the Lord prospered. That person It's the same word. When the Spirit of the Lord comes on you, it is to prosper you. I like that. It means when the Spirit of the Lord comes on you, it means it's going to bring you to profit. It's going to bring you to success. It's going to bring you to progress in your life. The prophetic word has this tendency to wake your inner man up to spiritual reality where we are kind of dull to it otherwise. It just brings an awareness of spiritual reality to you And it puts empowerment and fight in you and strength in you. And it raises your spiritual awareness into new dimensions. That is the purpose of the prophetic word. It's the oil flowing from the olive trees into the golden candlestick, providing the fuel for the fire to burn. That's the word of the Lord. That's the purpose of the prophetic word. Oil is released in part into the soul of the person who receives the word. Inspiration fills your heart and strengthens you. Your consciousness and awareness is raised to another level. Proverbs 29.18, it says, where there is no vision, people perish. That word for vision, when there is no prophetic word, check it out in the Hebrew if you like it. When the prophetic word is missing, the church goes dry. That's what it says. No prophetic word, the church goes dry. There's an old testament example of the need. Let me quickly take you to a New Testament example. First Timothy. First Timothy chapter one. This page right here. Verse eighteen. This charge I commit unto you, my son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on you, that by them you might war a good warfare. 1 Timothy 1, verse number 18. At some point in Timothy's life, he heard prophetic words spoken over his life, And these prophetic words became an anchor to his soul because in the future, when it got rough, you had to go back to what God said to you. You had to go back to that point where the Spirit of God invaded you with supernatural revelation and deposited something in you that by them you might war a good warfare. I want you to consider the kind of warfare that Timothy had to endure. Timothy comes on the scene in the life of Paul after John Mark forsook the ministry. Now, we don't know why Mark quit in Acts 15. Maybe just the whole idea of some spiritual warfare was more than Mark could handle. Maybe he was lonely. Maybe he didn't like travel. Maybe he was just too intense to travel with Paul and to cast out demons and just be opposed and have stones thrown at you and all that kind of stuff. Maybe that was just too intense and Mark quits. I don't know why he quit, but he quit. But Mark quits and Timothy is elected by Paul to take his place. Now, Timothy, according to Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, is well reported of by the local brothers. His mother was a Jew. His father was a Greek. Paul wanted him to travel with him. Hands were laid on him. We get this from 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Hands were laid on him by Paul and by the elders. A charge of prophetic words were spoken over Timothy. Prophecies were spoken. Gifts were imparted to him with charismatic Enablements with evangelistic abilities, if you want references, 1 Timothy 4 verses 14 and 15, 2 Timothy 1 verses 6 to 7, just explain what I just said to you. Prophecies were spoken over him. Imagine taken over from John Mark. Imagine saying yes to Paul after you have just witnessed what happened to him in Acts 14. What happened in Acts 14? Well, he and Barnabas were in a place called Lystra. And one day they were saying, oh, the gods have visited us. And they thought they were Jupiter and Mars or Saturn or something. And and they said, no, don't worship us. And then the next day they were going to stone him. And at Lystra, I think it was Lystra if I remember right, is they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city as dead. And Timothy's from there. He's from this region. He's probably one of Paul's converts. This is all known to Timothy. And they drag Paul out of the city. is dead, and he's broken bones, and he's bloodied face, and they just stone the guy. And they're standing around Paul, thinking he's dead. And my imagination goes wild here. And I can just see Paul opening his eyes. He says, "What are you looking at?" And gets up and marches back into the city. And then a little later, he says to Timothy, why don't you join my team? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Any volunteers? <laughs> Especially when the trouble with Paul, persecutions were going to take place everywhere that Paul went. And it was no easy thing to work with Paul. No easy thing to be a partner in that kind of ministry. Afflictions and persecutions and a lot of suffering happens to Paul but I want Timothy to be with me. Now, Timothy, by nature, if you read through First and Second Timothy, you can get a little bit of character, uh, build his character out of that. By temperament, listen to this. Timothy was shy. Timothy was timid. Timothy could be a little bit prone to fear And tend to draw back and hide within his own soul. But Paul would never allow you to hide behind the cowardness of your own flesh. Would never permit that. And yet, this timid, shy Timothy, God had called him into an arena of warfare. When you read through First and Second Timothy, there's many metaphors about war. Be a good soldier, endure hardness, fight the good fight of faith. To travel with Paul and do the work of an evangelist with Paul was to face many hardships and life-threatening situations. I mean, just think, you get called by Paul in Acts 16... First thing you experienced was the beatings at Philippi. Then you go in Acts 17 to Thessalonica and then you're going to be charged with treason against the Roman Empire. Welcome to the ministry, Timothy. Welcome to the team. You know, just facing warfare all the time. Constant opposition from unbelievers. And then the charge that he was given to him was to be faithful to the gospel. And that even included rebuking churches and dealing with people who were much older than himself and correcting them. Oh, dear. So... How many know that sometimes when the task seems overwhelming to you, that you just haven't got the strength to carry on anymore? When you are at the end of your rope, you're doing God's will, but you're just wore out. How many know it's good to go back to that prophecy? Go back to that time when God deposited something in your soul and let it fire your spirit again. Feed your soul again. How do these prophecies help him? Through the strength of what the Spirit had imparted to him through the prophetic word. He was to stir up those giftings that were in him. He was to not neglect those giftings that were in him. He could, by meditating on them, give himself to them and profit thereby, and he could strengthen his resolve in God to push himself forward. And that's what Timothy did. That by the prophetic word, you may war a good warfare. That you may carry on in the strength of that word when you really get wore out from the battle. How many you know we really need to get refreshed at times? We, sometimes the battle can just get weary. I remember a case in my own life not too long ago. Sitting in our living room, Darla had long gone to bed and I was still up. It was 1.30 in the morning. And I was sitting and I was just battle weary. And I was mentally and my soul was absolutely exhausted with a constant warfare. Seemed to be going through. Just constant, constant. I was just wore out with it. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you what I was doing. I was researching on the internet reasons why pastors burn out. Why pastors give up why pastors burn out. And I had 80% of all the symptoms of burnout. 80%. Just wore out with the constant battle. Constant. Just fatigued, mentally wore out with it. And I'm 1.30 in the morning. I'm sitting there. Why pastors burn out and quit? Then the Spirit of the Lord came on me. I don't know how to explain it. For five minutes, I could time it. It lasted five minutes. Just wave after wave of His presence washed over me and washed over me and washed over me. And after five minutes, I was a new person. And it just washed the weariness out. Wow. Do it again. <laughs> just washed the whole fatigue, the whole weariness, the whole soul that's been so put under. Just washed it out. And I was a new man within five minutes. Thank God for it. Thank God for it. We see, the Spirit of God... Wants to make a deposit into your soul, into your heart, and into your spirit, and puts life and strength and brings you into a new awareness. You know, a new consciousness that you don't have. Now, of course, it's going to be assumed. I'm not that's not the purpose of the teaching here today, but of course, with all prophetic words, all has to be tested, all has to be judged. No word from the Lord operates in isolation. And how to judge prophecy, that is just another study for another time. But of course it has to do. We have to judge in all this. But we must have the prophetic word of the Lord because we need discouragement washed out of us. We need weariness washed out of us. Sometimes the battle is just really long. And when it gets really long, you can get really tired in your mind and tired in your emotions. And the Word of the Lord comes to you and there's oil imparted into your dry heart. And you're made wet with the oil of God and the Spirit of God burns it. And you've got this new spiritual awareness and consciousness that rises up in you. And it causes you to rise above your circumstances. The Word of the Lord. First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse twenty eight. Twelve twenty eight. And God has set some in the church. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. I'd like you to notice that in this list of things in the local church here, it doesn't even mention pastors. Ooh, that's interesting. We want a New Testament church. We have to understand New Testament giftings. Apostles are sent ones. They're your itinerant people that travel and found churches and strengthen churches local church prophets should be there local church teachers should be there local church miracles should be there local church gifts of healings should be there helps should be there administrative people should be there diversities of tongues should be there and so on. But I want you to notice that the apostle is primary. It doesn't mean he's the man on top, he means he's the man on the bottom. He's the foundation. It's, it's, the church is built from down up, not up down. The first man is your foundation. The apostle's not the king over the place, he's the foundation on the bottom. And then foundation, you've got prophets and you've got teachers, and they are foundational to the church. And if you don't have your prophet, if you don't have your teacher, you haven't got your foundation right. Haven't got your foundation right. Prophets and teachers are foundational to the to the church. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. A church called Antioch. Church called Antioch. Now, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. Certain prophets and teachers. And it mentions five of them by name, Barnabas being the first, and Saul, who would later become Paul, being the fifth. I just want you to note that the church at Jerusalem failed in the heart of God they wasted their Pentecostal experience because they could not allow the Spirit of God to move outside the box of their traditions. They could welcome the Holy Spirit as long as it didn't challenge the way they did things. As soon as it challenged the way they did things, they killed Pentecost rather than get go of their tradition. It failed. Jerusalem failed. God had to start over. And he started over in a place called Antioch. And Barnabas went there in Acts chapter 11 and kind of shepherded what he found was existing there already, formed him into a church, went and found this man named Saul of Tarsus that he had met back in Acts 9, brought him to Antioch, and the two of them, Barnabas and Saul, Saul and Barnabas, prophets and teachers through the ministry of the prophet and through the ministry of the teacher for a solid year the church at Antioch was under the ministry of the prophet and the teacher Let's, let's catch this under the ministry of the prophet and the teacher the result is that you end up with five prophets and teachers in gifted leadership of the church. The result being that God could eventually say, here's now a church I can trust with my heart for the great commission. Raise up Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And they went out in missionary work, apostolic work. And Antioch is the first time in the New Testament that any church obeys the great commission. But what is the church that obeyed the Great Commission? It was the one that was built upon the ministry of the prophet and the teacher. The prophet and the teacher. If we want to become all that we have the potential of being, if we don't want to fall short, then we're going to have to do some serious adjustment in our thinking And the pattern in the way we have church has drastically got to change. What's God's goal? The creation of a people for himself. Not to populate heaven, but the creation of a people who will in turn also populate heaven when they die. But the creation of a people for his name and for his pleasure. And to get those people to be all that they're supposed to be, you have to have your prophet and you have to have your teacher. If we want to become all that we're going to be, God intends us to be all the potential that is there, you can't just have snippets of devotional material on a Sunday morning and think that's going to deliver us into what we should be. It's not going to work. We can't have just devotional snippets to inspire you. What you need is the word and the word and the word and the word and the word. And you need teaching and you need teaching and you need teaching and you need teaching and you need teaching. Not just devotional type of stuff. You need teaching and lots of it. And that's what you had at Antioch five people teaching ministry, five people of prophetic ministry and through the combination of the teaching and the prophet in their midst, then the church finally could be the church that was so full of understanding of the principles of God and so full of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that they could start moving out and living out and working out the purposes of God. The church needs both expressions. It really does. Teachers will inform the mind. Teachers will illuminate your conscience. Teachers will create new paradigms for you to think through. Teachers will help you to overcome old ways of thinking. Teachers will give you new perspectives by which you to judge things. Teachers will broaden and shape your life. We need the teacher. The prophet will inflame your heart. The prophet will pour inspiration and vital life into your soul. Prophets will speak a specific application that you need to hear at a specific time in your life. Teachers will be more general. Prophets will hit you right where you are at the moment. Specific application that your heart needs to hear. After you hear the word of the Lord given by a prophetic word, it will lift your soul into new consciousness. You just become aware of things you really didn't live in that awareness before. Just an awareness is birthed inside of you. The oil flows in, causing your life and your soul to catch fire. You need the prophetic word of the Lord. When you have the ministry of the teacher and the ministry of the prophet, working in your local church, then we can become and reach the potential that God wants us to be. I will be bold enough to say that if we don't have the teacher, and if we don't have the prophet, you won't reach your potential. I'll be that bold. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. God didn't give these gifts for them to be options. They're not optional. They're absolutely necessary. So we need the prophetic word. We need the word of the Lord speaking to us as individuals sometimes. And we need the word of the Lord spoken to us as a corporate group of people at times. We need the teaching, the understanding of the principles of the word. We need the oil poured into our soul so that our soul the heart begins to burn bright with the testimony of God. We need both ministries. So thank God for the example that we have in Scripture of the prophets. Then I thank God for the prophetic gift in our own midst. You know, whether it comes by anybody prophesying, or if it comes by someone hearing from the Lord at 5 o'clock in the morning, or if it comes when God just visits somebody on their bed late at night and begins to speak to them. Thank God for His Word. Thank God for that visitation. Thank God for it. And we need it. I'll go on record saying, I believe in this stuff. I'll go more than that. I don't believe in it. I need it. I need the Word of the Lord. And so we want the Teacher in fullness. We want the prophetic gift in fullness because those are your two pillars, those are your two foundations. That will cause the church to be able to meet its potential. So God pour it on. God pour it on. Amen. Amen.